0: Hey Decker, Brian, you wouldn't have come if I just asked you to, sit down pal, come on, don't be an asshole Decker, I've got
1: four skin jobs walking the streets. Alright folks, welcome to Man Cave Movie Review, the podcast that reviews the good, the bad and the ugly of movies for men. This is The Big Five-O, episode 50. And today we're going to be talking about Blade Runner. This great and fantastic film stars Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, Joanna Cassidy, and Daryl Hannah. I am your host, Steve Michaels, and joining me is my good and dear friend, Mark Nexus 6 Slover.
0: Be very,
1: very quiet. We're hunting replicants. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Awesome. All right, and also joining us is our other good
2: and dear friend, Ken. If you're not cop, you're little people, Roni. Well, you know, this was famous for creating a, a visually impressive dark future, a dystopian future, one that would just be a living hell to live in. And I finally figured out how it was done. If you carefully watch the movie, you only see ads for two types of beer, Budweiser and Schlitz. And I think you all would agree that if you were stuck in a future where all you had was Budweiser and Schlitz, life just wouldn't be worth living. <laughs> Well,
1: you know, I saw the Budweiser one, but I missed the Schlitz one. That that I'll have to go back and look at that. All right, thanks, Ken. And uh, let's see, and also joining us, last and certainly not least, is our other good and dear friend, Jeff. I just make eyes, Muncie.
3: You know, the uh, band Timbuktu that um, did the song, uh, My Future's So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades, apparently never saw this movie to see that in the future it's nothing but dark, dark, and more dark.
2: Did you say ten bucks two or ten buck three?
3: Yeah, two, three, whatever it takes.
2: Ten buck three. <laughs> Get your classic rock right, man. Wow. I wouldn't call that classic I rock.
3: I was gonna say, not so much classic, and I'm actually not ashamed that I didn't know it was ten bucks three. Um <laughs> <laughs>
0: that that's a point in your favor, Jeff.
3: <laughs> I'm
1: I'm sorry. I'm damn proud that I didn't know that. Point Muncie, your serve sir. sir. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, like I said, we're talking about Blade Runner, and uh, we saved this one for our uh, for our long-awaited fiftieth episode of uh, Man Cave Movie Review. And uh, forty
3: nine shows longer than we thought we were going to go. I'm sorry, some of us thought we were going to go.
1: <laughs> you just couldn't help yourself, could you? I couldn't. I couldn't do it. <laughs> Yes, this is fifty. We never thought we'd get this far, but we have, and we're we're looking for fifty and beyond more. Uh, well, one of our dear
3: supportive friends—we won't name any names—but um, you know, they said ah, one and you're done.
1: <laughs> one and done. No, we're still here. Uh, but like I said, we're talking about Blade Runner. And for those of you who have been living in a cave uh, in Tora Bora all your life and never heard of this movie or never saw it, here's the background. Uh, it's uh, it's the future. And man has developed the technology to create replicants or human uh, clones to serve in colonies outside Earth, but with fixed lifespans. Uh, uh, Deckard is a Blade Runner, uh, a cop who specializes in terminating replicants. Originally in retirement, he is forced to re-enter when four replicants escape from an off-world colony to Earth. And that's pretty much the, uh, the background. I'm just going to say right now... Uh, one of my favorite movies probably of all time. It is, a, um, I think, probably one of the best sci-fi movies made. That's my personal opinion, and it's going to be reflected in the review. But it's definitely, I think, one of the top ones. Actors that were in there, uh, like I said, you had Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer. Uh, oh, gosh, I forgot to even mention, uh, Sean Young's in this. And uh, she she plays Rachel, who uh, you come to find out is a, is also a replicant. And I have to say, of all the movies I've seen Sean Young in and it's not that many. She looked damn good in this one. Daryl Hannah was probably about, what, 20, 21 years old when she made this movie. She was, you know, very young. Uh, But, again, this movie was made back in 19, gosh, when was it, 1982. So I just started high school when this movie came out. But uh, I don't want to monopolize the whole show here, so I'm going to kick it over to uh, Mark. Uh, what are your thoughts, real quick, on the uh, on this one? This is one of those
0: movies, that, like you, Steve, I th- it's one of my favorites, and we'll talk about that. But I, it, it's one of my favorites for a number of reasons. It's a genre-defining, and I would say even a culturally-defining movie. Um, it, in many ways, ushered in what is now known as the cyberpunk uh, genre or era, and um, Based on a short, based on a novel by P.K. Dick, uh, which we've done one of his before, Total Recall. It in many ways also completely changed some of the landscape of science fiction movie making. You see with this movie the entrance into a lot of P.K. Dick's works and Hollywood using his stuff to make movies, good, bad, and indifferent. I would say this is the best of the efforts using Dick's material. And it deals with a lot of interesting issues, and I think it's to Ridley Scott's credit that he doesn't try and ram any issues down anyone's throat about whether it's environmentalism, human rights, robot rights, any of those things. He leaves a lot of things to the, to the viewer's mind. Is Deckard a replicant? Is what he's doing right? It, what is going on in this world? I, and I think that's very brilliantly done. And I would, I would argue it's it's not a sci-fi movie. We could have that discussion. But it's a near-future tech crime noir movie.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it, it's, it's got some sci-fi elements. It's also got some throwback to the 40s uh, crime. And uh, you know it, it's that precursor, as I noted, to the cyberpunk era. It's just visually also one of those stunning movies I know we'll talk about that 30 years later – I would say you could stack this up against any movie that's been made now with state of the art, yeah, and it would arguably still blow them away. It, it is probably Ridley Scott's best work, to my mind.
1: I, I second that, and uh, and Mark, thanks for bringing that up. I I could not think of what that darn term was. I'm having um, like major brain farts today. But when you said like it, uh, that crime noir. That uh, that you saw back in the 40s and 50s, that they did a lot of that. This movie, when you see the styles, the hairstyles, the wardrobes, everything about it was literally a throwback to the you know to the late 30s, early 40s. Just the way everybody dressed and how they looked. Hell, just you know Sean Young's hairstyle. I mean, that was you know I mean she looked like a you know Betty Grable pinup model without the without the blonde hair. I mean, it was just that that look. And I really like that. The music. I mean there were times when you would listen to some of the music in the background. Uh not not the score, but some of the music that was actually playing um in the back while they were talking. And it was that forties jazz kind of style of music, which I really like that. I mean I I, I like that era to begin with, and I just like how they, you know, put that in this thing and um, and then, like you said, too, it's not so much sci-fi. It's it's, it's futurism, kind of like Jeff brought that up when we talked about Total Recall uh, way back in the day. Ken, what do you think?
2: Well, I'm going to say I, I count this as science fiction uh, for myself. <laughs> I saw this when it first came out at the old Arlington Theater. Uh, you know, Like you guys have said, I, this is one of my favorite movies. It visually it was so impressive. And it was something that hadn't been done. So, so far as I know, I can't recall any other movie that gave you a vision like that of the future. I mean, this was not that long after, let's say, 2001 came out, where it's, you know, so many of the older science fiction movies from the 60s and even the 70s, it was a you know very clean, technological, antiseptic sort of feel. This was a gritty, grungy environment. And the thing that I liked about the way uh, Ridley Scott made this was he didn't skip on... Having lots of extras, devoting a lot of attention to creating the sets and having all kinds of action going on that he didn't really explain. Like Mark said, he just sort of, there's things going on and, you know, he's not saying, okay, I'm going to cram this down your throat and explain or make a big point about this. He just does it and you just got to go along for the ride. And I really enjoyed that. One thing that jumped out at me when I was getting, you know, doing my research on this was, you know, I saw this again back in 1982. Young young person. And this movie is set in 2019. So it's like, as I sit here, I'm thinking like, okay, I got six years to get my off-world colonies, starships, and flying cars. Damn it, where are they? Uh, There is a problem with science fiction movies when they unfortunately so many are forgettable and they never hang around so it's not a big deal but here's like we're now talking about this you know great movie that was made you know 30 years ago but it's like we're living in the future that this was predicting and we're sad to say it's not that future so
1: we talked about that before where they set something in the future and we don't think they go out far enough but I think in 82, you know, 30 years off, I mean, it was, you know, the whole concept of, okay, we're going to be beyond the year 2000. And and I don't know, maybe there was some thought that there would be, you know, that was going to usher in some kind of major technological advance or something like that. And then who knows where we'll be 30 years from now. I mean, I don't know. Uh, Probably not much farther than we're at here. Again,
2: I'm not complaining at all. I just, you know, I understand why they did it and everything else. It's just, you know, I think it's a, I I just thought it was funny. It's like, Really, you know, we're almost there, and also I'm old, right. Uh, but you know I, I, I have to say that uh, a for those of you that haven't seen this, the feel, the world that uh, Ridley Scott has created for this movie is one that it could be it could be a part of the world of you know going on the background of aliens, that sort of a environment uh, or you know a number of other future movies. Uh, so, take that for what it is. In terms of like, it's a different take on that kind of a future. You know, not far future, near future.
1: Right, Jeff. What do you think?
3: I'm not going to elaborate too much on what Ken and Mark said. Um, I like a lot of what they have already said, um, and I agree with it. I'm going to I'm going to ch- agree with Ken here in the point that I this is one of the um one of the movies I would consider science fiction for for. A few of the um, for for a few points. Um, when I think of science fiction, I, I do think of androids, and this is probably one of the quintessential android type movies. I mean, this is something that it does kind of have you ask yourself: is is this is this where we need to go? Um, is this what we is this something that we really want to explore? You know, we, we, you know more recently we've talked about cloning, and is is that something that we need to do is you know human cloning is something we need to do um and and now we're talking about you know is is creating real like androids who think that they are really human is that is that ethically where we need to go and and i think androids are fair game for science fiction i think that is one of the mm-hmm. one of the markers of science fiction along with you know it, they they allude to space travel here i think you know, even though it's it's probably it maybe VTOL craft or maybe hovercraft. I mean, that if it's if it's hovercraft, it's one thing, but if it's VTOL craft, it, it's something different. So, you know, I think there's a lot of science fiction elements in this, and I would consider it a science fiction movie. Um, one of the estimates of this movie is it was not very well viewed the first time it came out, but over time, I mean, this this has really been appreciated. Um, four movie that it is and um, you know it is in a lot of top 100 list uh, of, of movies so um, and, and and not too far near 100 um, you know a lot of people i think have appreciated it over time maybe are grown to appreciate it and as mark said this is one of the few that stands up very well to you know to this day's viewing so a lot of things were done right in this movie
1: right and that's I want to talk about, too, is just kind of like the uh, the initial uh, reaction to this movie when it came out, because I think in a way, when people go to see a movie like this, they're expecting to see something science fiction, and because it, I, you know, it was portrayed as science fiction, it's supposed to be sci-fi. I think when people think of sci-fi, they think of Star Trek, they think of Star Wars, they're going to go see something like that, and then really all you saw was almost kind of a 1940s you know crime noir, like Mark pointed out set in the future and i think people are just like oh that's not what i wanted to see you know it wasn't a mystery movie that type of thing it wasn't like casablanca but it was more of you know deckers out there he's trying to take out these replicants who came back to earth because you know they find out that they've got a limited lifespan and they want more life and they're going to they're going to try to get back to the tyrell corporation where they were made to find out how they get more life and Decker's job is to is to um, as his boss said, air him out. So that's pretty much what Decker's whole role in this thing is is just basically tracking them down. And the thing of it is is that you know they're replicants. They're not um, they're not human clones. They're they're basically androids. But you can't tell them you can't tell the difference between them and a person. Which really, like I said, this kind of throws it into that alien universe. You know, really Scott's alien universe where nobody knew that Ash was an Android. Nobody realized that um, Bishop was an Android until you know he kind of gave himself away. But that was a thing, and that's where you could see where they use the you know where they where they fit into each other's each other's universe. And I think that's really kind of cool. I really kind of like that. And I think that's why this movie didn't get the good reviews that it did early on because I think people just went in there with a d- different expectation of what they were gonna see and um, just really couldn't appreciate it for what a really good movie that it was. But anyway.
0: Let me jump in. I think, I think there are a couple other factors at the box office, too. One, it came out in 82, and at that point, science fiction in the movie theaters had been dominated by Star Wars. You right. had Star Wars in 77, Empire in 80, so, and then all the knockoffs. So much of the audience's tastes were derivative of that. And in 82, it came out up against two other, science, we'll say, science fiction movies. One we've reviewed, The Thing, and the other was Star Trek Wrath of Khan. And those give you pretty straightforward stories. One's an adventure revenge story. The other's a horror story. This one, and you mentioned it, and we've all talked on it, I think that's the other thing that hurts this movie to some to some people uh, and hurt it at the box office, is, and I'll just use this term, for lack of a better one, it's a thinking man science fiction movie. It's not an action movie, not that there's not action there, but this movie call, this is very much a mood movie and it, it goes counter to what people were seeing and wanting to see when it came out in
1: 1982. Mm-hmm. Would you guys agree that this is not a heavy dialogue movie? I mean, there's some, but it's not there's not a lot of talking in this movie. No,
2: it's it's more of a visual movie. I really think of it as a vision. I was impressed with the visuals.
3: Well, I think that I think you're right, Steve. And to a point, I think there's one version of this movie where there's a lot of narration that goes on. Right. And I think it was to I think it was to compensate for the. I I kind of agree with Mark in the sense that this is kind of a thinking person's movie, and it, it maybe because of that. You know, he they ended up throwing in the narration, which was done afterward, and I guess Harrison Ford had to come back for it and um, was not at all pleased um, in having to do it. He felt he was strong-armed in having to do a, a, a narration, which and he was he was kind of mad because that was not the original vision. I, I'm assuming that maybe the studio, in a sense, said, well, you know, this movie didn't do as well as it should have, could have, would have. And they anal- anal- analyzed it as, oh, well, because you know there was not enough talking and there was not enough storytelling and words that were used to walk the layperson through this. So most of the, I think, the renditions of this movie um, in some capacity have done away with the narration um, going back towards what Ridley Scott wanted in the beginning.
2: I believe there's seven versions of this floating out. So for the listeners... Keep in mind that you know I don't think that all four of us have getting ready for this review have seen all the same versions because I, I pointed out before the show you know what I watched was the 1982 release version with the narration, which gives you a feel. I knew these others existed, but that's the one I watched. So I think some of the other guys have watched the other versions. I'll just say that the narration. It is sort of leading the audience by the hand, but it does give it a throwback to the '40s, you know, film noir detective potboiler type shows where that was a common feature.
0: Right. One other thing about this movie that I think is hard for some audience is there are no clear cut heroes and there are no clear cut protagonists and antagonists. I mean, yes, people have you know Roy Batty and. The replicants are cast as the um, antagonists, but I think you could say Roy Batty is much like Magua when we reviewed Last of the Mohicans. You can understand people's motivations, but this is not black hats and white hats. Actually, to the contrary, all all the main characters, to my mind, are in one way or another at the end of their rope. Physically for the replicants, mentally for Deckard, he's burned out for Sean Young's character, she's she's emotionally at the end of her rope because she's found out that she's a replicant. Um, J.R. Sebastian is an a young man in an old man's body with Methuselah syndrome. It's just a real interesting discourse and I think it, it's very telling that you really watch these characters and they're all pretty much they're shot. And it, I think again that's not something a lot of people want when they go see a science fiction movie.
2: Right, no, it's, it's morally ambiguous, and that's yes. something that audiences tend not to like. Moral ambiguity, like they like their white hats and black hats, and able to root for the good guys. And who is the good guy in this movie? You know, I don't know.
1: Well, I mean, Roy Roy is uh, a little bit more on the uh, amoral side. I mean, and he's he, dying. He's dying. <laughs> I mean, death. you do what you got to do. Well, but he's facing death, but he also has no compunction about whacking anybody who just happens to be in his way. I mean, not even in his way, but just, you know, even people that uh, maybe even trying to help him. It's like, okay, well, I'm done with you.
3: <laughs> so,
1: I don't know. That's- well,
3: I think I could have saw it that way until the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, it, at, you know it, at the end of the movie, it, it suddenly it, it really makes you wonder, was that his moment of being human? As human as he could be, you know, and and I, I had thought that, too. I, of course, one of my other thoughts is, you know, if if I being interrogated by um, a bunch of schmoes um, and they're in the process of killing me, I sure as hell am not going to, in my last dying breath, tell them exactly what they need to go to do to solve their their problem, especially if you're going to, you know, freeze me to death. So <laughs> all right, I just just eyes. saying, yeah, no, I'm just saying
2: <laughs> I just do eyes. Oh uh, gosh. <laughs> if uh, old James Hong.
1: Oh yeah, good old James Hong. Got to love that guy. He's uh he is the go-to Asian actor for uh pretty much any movie that's out there. If there's a movie that's got Asian people in there, you can pretty much guarantee James Hong is going to be in there too. Uh but hey, while we're on there, let's talk a little bit about the actors. Uh obviously Harrison Ford is in this. He plays uh he plays Deckard. And This is, uh, I mean, he's just—he's coming off the highs of, you know, Star Wars and, um, oh gosh, uh, Indiana Jones. So, you know, he's—he's already a well-known commodity at this point. Everybody knows who he is. And um, I was actually kind of shocked when I looked him up and saw how old he was. He uh, is—he is getting up there.
2: He's about seventy.
1: He's—he's going to be Yeah, uh, he's—he was born on uh, July thirteenth, nineteen forty-two. So, yeah, he's—he's seventy.
3: And apparently, he signed on for the next Star
1: Wars movie. Mm-hmm. I saw that. Wow,
3: you didn't know that.
1: <laughs> I did not know. I didn't know there was going to be another Star Wars movie.
3: You didn't know there was going to yeah. be another Star Wars movie. Well, Wow! Oh, yeah. As soon as Disney acquired the rights to Lucasfilm, it wasted no time saying there's going to be another twenty, and we're going to we're going to cast somebody as Han Solo's son, and we're going to milk this for every penny we can.
1: So I don't wonder if Chewbacca is going to have gray hair and his, uh, and his you know, gray streaks through the, uh, through the fur. No, he'll use chest
0: for Wookies. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow.
2: Okay. <laughs> just, just dip him in a bat. <laughs>
1: wow. It's great. Man. He's going to be getting a little mangy. You know, Harrison Ford, definitely a known commodity. Uh, Rutger Hauer uh, has to be his best role.
2: But and his favorite, he says it's his best he, role,
1: and he says it's his favorite. Is it? Okay, the guy just stole the movie. I mean, he he really just pretty much walked away with this one. He was so good in it, you know. It, it's just hard to really describe the you know the acting that he did in there, and it, he just looked like he was having a ball when he was when he was making this. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the trivia because I heard this movie was just a, a nightmare to make. Uh, I heard there was a lot of uh, uh, issues with the crew i guess harrison ford and ridley scott were not getting along uh but um he he claims you're right i mean he claims that this is his favorite movie which hey you know good for him because it's definitely one of mine uh let's see then we've got uh obviously sean young she plays rachel she uh this is back when she uh she was really young in this because uh, she's a few years older she was born 1959 and uh so it's it's interesting to see her in this because she just I mean she looks like she's like twenty something in this.
2: She did Stripes the year before this. I think that was sort of a big box office breakthrough.
1: That's right. Follow her,
2: up. She was in Stripes.
1: That's right. Yeah, she was a Bill Murray squeeze. Forgot about that. Uh, let's see. You see a little bit of uh, Edward James Almos is in this, and uh, obviously Daryl Hannah. Uh, one of our. Favorite character actors, i uh, seen him in a bunch of stuff, is Brian James. And, uh, you know, God rest his soul, a uh, guy died way too young. But he uh, he plays uh, Leon, one of the, uh, uh, <laughs> probably not the brightest bulb of the group, but <laughs> definitely the strongest one.
3: <laughs> yeah, I love it when he sticks his hand in the, uh, yeah. the, the dry eyes. Liquid hydrogen or whatever it is,
1: and then sniffs his fingers, and then
3: sniffs his yeah. fingers.
1: Yeah, yeah, and then he's just because he is. He's kind of one of those guys that you know when when Rutger Hauer's interrogating James Hong, he's like sitting there like balancing eyeballs on his shoulder, <laughs> right? <laughs> just
0: like, oh, yeah, just well. And if you look, if if you look at the when they're showing uh, when Deckard's seeing the different screenshots of the replicants, and he comes up. There's a real quick take, and it says there's IQ rating and strength rating or that type of rating. And one is IQ six. His strength rating is nine. And remember that uh, the, the inspector is yeah, he's not terribly bright, but he can load things all day long.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Uh, let's what's see. A, what's a tortoise? You know. <laughs> yeah, what's a tortoise? That whole opening scene is just great. <laughs> and that actor just died last year, Morgan Paul.
1: Did he really? Oh. Yeah.
0: And he was in a movie we reviewed before. He was in Patton. Remember, yeah. he was uh, Patton's early first aid. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah
3: that Morgan. Was oh, that's right.
0: Yeah. Uh, he, he got shot up badly in this movie, too.
1: Yeah, he sure did. Uh, let's see. Uh, Dr. Eldon Tyrell was played by a guy named Joe Turkle. There's actually a little tie-in in this part here that I'm going to talk about. Joe Turkel, he played uh, best known for his role as Lloyd, the ghostly bartender in The Shining, and we talked about the th- the theatrical cut of uh, this movie, and they show them uh, kind of driving off at the very end, and they're kind of driving through the mountain. That's actually those scenes are actually from The Shining. So, just kinda, I thought that was kind of a neat little tie in between those two. Uh, let's see, Joanna Cassidy, wow. She is. Uh, she was a knockout. She still is a good-looking woman, but she uh, she was definitely a knockout in this one. Um, she played Zora, who was, um, I think, what was her job? Her, her uh, off-world colony job. She was a, a hitman. She was like
2: a, an assassin,
1: assassin
0: infiltrator. Yeah, murder kick squad is what they called her. Okay, let a murder
1: kick squad.
2: She, okay. She's basically, Whatever
1: a killer, killer stripper. Yeah, <laughs> killer stripper. <laughs> killer stripper. I like that. Sounds like. Great name for a rock group too, Killer Strippers. I don't know. I everybody in this one. Oh, and then of course there's Daryl Hannah. She played Pris. And, well, and um, William Sanders. William Sanderson, yeah. William Sanderson. You see this again, if you don't know the name, believe me, you've seen him in movies. This guy is in everything. Um he was uh, actually one movie that was in a, actually I enjoy the movie, it's called Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. We need to do that one sometime. Yeah.
0: And he was,
3: in, was Deadwood. He in
1: Deadwood.
2: Was he in Deadwood? Yeah. Oh yeah. yes. He oh, was yeah, the character.
3: Uh, opposing he's, hotel owner.
2: Oh, the weedy, crappy. There's also the uh, he made his breakthrough on the Bob Newhart show, playing Daryl, the brother Daryl, brother Daryl, the other brother Daryl, brother Daryl. Wow,
3: yep. yeah. so it
2: was a strong cast. I do have to say that uh, some of these people are not ill. They were early in their career, but it was a you know, the people that knew their business and did a good job. Well I would say probably you know Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer,
1: Joanna Cassidy, they were they were pretty much veteran actors. Um yeah, in this one. I mean there was other there were other veterans in there, but I mean those, those were the three uh you know names that people would recognize and you know, say okay, yeah, I know who these guys are. You know, I don't know if I would call Harrison Ford a veteran actor at this point. I mean, it, he was
3: I mean, it I mean this is only Uh, you know, five years after Star Wars. I mean, this is like he was the new guy on the block. I mean, it was like he was the it guy. Okay. And, um, I mean, just, I mean, you know, he he wasn't, I don't think a veteran at this point. Yeah. But I do think it was like he is, I don't know, gosh, who are the big names now? We got, uh, you know, we got the Helmsworth guys. We've got. uh, He's
2: like, he's like Helmsworth. And then, you know, he made his big splash a couple years ago. He's had a couple big role since in successful movies and you expect more of him
3: right yeah he's like it's the jeremy renner right now who's just in everything um and just kind of you know came on the scene in the last few years and now we're kind of putting him in anything and everything so i mean everything he kind of touched during this point was fairly successful for or I should say was a was a really good movie for what it was you know you can mm-hmm. You know, I, we, I guess we could sit down and argue whether Raiders of the Lost Ark was a good movie or if it was just a really fun, engaging movie. Um, same thing with Star Wars: was it a really good movie? Well, you know, it's a fun, engaging movie, but was it really good? Um, well, define you know, that,
1: what do you mean by when you say fun and engaging versus good?
3: Well, they, they were good movies in the sense, but they were—I mean, were they? Were that? Are they classics? In a sense, I think they're classics, but I mean, there 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 are a lot of problems with those movies. Um, more with Star Wars than than maybe Raiders of the Lost Ark, because Raiders of the Lost Ark is just a it's just a joy ride from beginning to end. Yeah, but, but I digress. Go on. Steve.
1: <laughs> hey, digression is part of the show. <laughs> well,
3: what would what would the show be without me and digression?
1: <laughs> About an hour long. <laughs> Okay, let's see where where we I say I completely lost my track with your digression. I mean, what do you guys think? I, I kind of want to get a little bit more into the into the plot of this movie. I mean, there was some of the things that they talked about. I think after the show, where I think Ridley Scott said that Decker was a was a replicant, and Harrison Ford always argued, "No, I wasn't." You know, I never I never got that impression. I mean, that never even dawned. I mean, in fact, I was kind of surprised when I first heard about that because. You know unlike all the others, and I think one of the reasons i guess one of the reasons that i don't think he was a replicant is you know, when you saw the one scene when um uh, Roy Batty and Leon walk into the you know sub zero room and you know Leon sticks his hand in dry ice and they 're not hurt or anything like that i mean decker's getting hurt i mean he 's in pain. I mean, when, when Roy Batty's breaking his fingers, he's screaming, it's like, well, if you're a replicant, why are you doing that? Because none of the others did.
3: Well, that's a good point. And he wasn't super strong like they were. I mean, there was a lot of things that that he, you know, and if if they're hunting down and killing all replicants, I mean, I guess you could say, well, of course, what's better to kill a replicant than a replicant? But he doesn't exhibit the same, I mean, unless he's a really early, early model and um, not worth, you know, its stocking whatever their androids are made of. Apparently, they're made of real skin, though, because you know most of them are, um, well, they're sent off world to pleasure the miners, so to say. And uh, <laughs> apparently, nobody knows the difference.
1: Definitely don't want to make one mad. That's for darn sure. Well, I, I guess that's, that's where I kind of was curious about that. And I don't know. It just, it, it, I, I never really bought into that. Because, like I said, you know, if he was an early model, I mean, he definitely was, he wasn't He was able to really defend himself unless he had a gun because, you know, he was pretty much getting his ass kicked by all of them.
2: It goes back to what I was saying. You know, when they were making this, they were shooting for a lot of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And I think there's another layer of that. I think they just wanted to throw that out there to sort of muddy the waters a little bit. Because this is a movie about, you know, what is human? What makes you real? What is memory? And what better to accentuate that than make this the leading character, you know, not quite totally certain. Mm-hmm. I guess I could see where
1: you, they may want to suggest that. I just, I'm just not buying it. And again, I didn't direct the movie, so who knows what really Scott really had in mind on that, but it's just, it's, it's a hard sell for me is, is basically what I'm saying.
3: what I, the things I really like about the movie and the way that it presents the information, it doesn't spoon feed everything to you. Mark has already said that. It, this is not a we're going to walk you through everything, we're going to explain every detail, we're going to leave no stone unturned. It is, you know what? It's left for your interpretation. You know, we talked about that with uh, that great show Prometheus. A lot of stuff is, you know, left to interpretation. And, you know, we, we don't need to give you every nuance and every backstory and um, detail about why we're here. Um, it is, you're, you're left to kind of, you know, just accept or figure things out on your own or just fill in the plot holes that you want to. And I don't want to say plot holes in a negative sense. It's just, a, okay, well, we have to accept that there are certain things that have happened and I don't need a narration into who my, my bartender is. You know, I don't need to know his entire backstory and how he ever came to making my drink. It's not important. What's important is the story... Um, the plot and, you know, the, the acting that, that's going on here. So, Steve, i I choose also, like you, not to think that he was yeah, a replicant. But, you know, if somebody else did, I, I don't really have, you know, much of an argument for him. Okay. Mark, what do you think? What does Mark think? <laughs>
0: Again, I, I, I mentioned it earlier. I, 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 it's credit to Ridley Scott. There are a lot of questions in this movie. And I like it that he lets people draw their own conclusions. I I've never really been one of those people who's gone, is he a replica? I, it it never really impacted my my how much I enjoyed the movie. So, you know, if that's if that's one of those sticking points for people and they want to talk about it, that's great. For me, it's uh, okay. It's an interesting concept. I don't still clearly understand the the unicorn reference, um, but obviously it's there for a reason, and then you see it again in the origami. The only My only conclusion as to why we have that brief flashing dream sequence is that it's pre-production shots for Ridley Scott's horrible movie Legend that he did right after Blade Runner. But <laughs> that's,
3: that's me, so... I got. First nothing. of all, first of all, I want I just want to say, Legend is not horrible. It may be very bad, but it's not horrible.
1: It's horrible.
3: Uh,
1: it's, it's pretty. It's pretty it's flipping horrible. bad, man. I said it's. I said it's very bad. I just didn't say it was horrible. I mean, you got. I mean, the only saving grace in that movie is Tim Curry. Yes. And and we're and we're jumping off this train right. Now, <laughs> thank you.
2: Speaking, speaking Sorry, of origami, I, I do think we need to give a little credit here to Edward James Olmos as well. We left him yes. out. Good point. He God. does a very good job as uh, oh, what's his name?
1: What is his name? Sure,
2: remember, remember his character's name. He's another cop. He, his name uh, is Gaff. Gaff. Yes, he plays yeah. Gaff. Who's sort of a heavy? I mean, he's sort of sort of lurking about, skulking about. You got the the idea that if you know, Deckard couldn't bring these guys down, well, Gaff would do it. But Gaff will let Deckard have first pop.
0: Backstory to Gaff: Why is he got a cane? Yeah, you know, he's limping a cane. There's a, there's another great. You could see a book written about Gaff. What would that be?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and I I did want to throw out a, a, a thing that when I have seen this movie and there's a whole. I think Jeff made the comment, this is an android movie. I mean, we got these artificial people. I'm going to throw in this, uh, Battlestar Galactica, and a series of other things, but, I mean, I'm not criticizing it, but it's the thing that bothers me, but if you're going to set up androids, replicants, whatever, that cannot be distinguished from humans, have emotions, bear children, you know, are genetically intertwineable, well, there comes a point where they're not androids or robots or machines, they're people. And, you know, I I know that movies like to stretch that and make that distinction, but there comes a point like, really? I mean, okay, people are going to get all bent out of shape because these are replicants? Well, they're people. I I, I don't know. I think it's overdoing a little bit for dramatic purposes, but that's my beef. Yeah, good point. That's a good point.
1: Uh, Guys, I want to jump over and talk about the soundtrack to this movie. What do you guys think of the score? I'm curious. Jeff, you're you're a score guy. What do you you think? This kind of touches on,
3: you know, the overall feel that I have for this movie. Um, The score is, this movie is one of the, few movies as we get into it, it really has a creep factor for me. Um, you know, Roy Batty and what he does, especially when we get, when we're talking about animated toys and, and things that are smaller than me, um, <laughs> and there's not many, so that's why I'm creeped out by him. Um, yeah, Those things just really wig me out, and this movie has a kind of an ambiance to it that really, it's not meant to be like a scary horror flick. Um, but it really, if I sit down and really get into this movie, it really creeps me out. And the music very much helps propel that creepiness throughout the movie. Hmm. Um, the cinematography, which, you know, the way that the music goes along with what you're seeing on the screen is, you know, the cut scenes. The, um, the, you know, the, and, and it's dark. It's a very dark movie. And I don't mean that in the sense of, um, you know, evil dark. It's just a dark movie, and I don't know if the sun is you know is is behind uh, uh, you know the moon for half of the movie because um, you never really see it. You know, I mean, it's it feels like it's pitch black all over again. Um, there's never daylight, and you've got all kinds of weird lighting, and the the lighting coupled with the music, coupled with just there's just a lot of development to the scenes. Um, and again, did I mention the small animated things in this movie? It's just creepy. But that said, I really like it for what it does for that sense. I, I'm not going to probably listen to any of these soundtracks anytime soon.
1: Really? Okay. I that's an that's an interesting take because that is not uh, that is not what I would have thought. I didn't get the creepiness factor from from the from the movie or from it, even, it's, even the soundtrack either.
3: Right, well, it's it's a Roy Batty type of thing um, that and just I mean, any, anytime they're in Sebastian's residence, um, it, there's just a creep factor that goes on for me, and I've always had that feeling for this movie, and I've always looked at this movie I think far different than I think a lot of other people because of that. There's just some creepy. There's just some creepy vibe that I get through most of this movie, and maybe it's I'm, I'm struggling with a lot of the, what does it mean to be human? And there's a lot of non-human things around here, and I'm looking at them in a humanistic point of view, and they're they're not. And I have to, I'm trying to, you know, wrap my mind around all that. Again, there's just something about this movie that has always done that for me, and I think it has a lot to do with the way that it was shot, the lighting, and the music, and just the underlying themes of the movie. And that's one of the reasons I I think I really enjoy it.
0: Okay, Mark, what do you think? Yeah, the music was done by Van Gellis, and this is pretty much his signature style. Uh, He he made it big with, um, what, Chariots of Fire. That's where he really broke out. Uh, This music, it's not so much a soundtrack as it would be likened to Gettysburg or those types of movies, Patton. To me, this music is just very evocative. The role of the music is to create place and mood and enhance the mood, whether it's the the discomfort, which I understand what you mean, Jeff. There's there's some elements of the way the music is structured with the, with the photography that create some discomfort that are not jarring as in off-key, but they're almost so subtle and in another setting you'd feel kind of like i like this music but in this setting you're thinking this is this is certainly out of the ordinary and then it sets up some big panoramic shots where you see the the uh the panorama of of the tyrell building and you hear the big booming arcing sounds it's, it's more of an evocation-type music than it is a soundtrack, and I think it does it very well. Is it something you're going to want to throw on your CD player? Well, I guess if you like Van Gaal's, because this is pretty much what you're going to get from him. But otherwise, it works, and I could not imagine anything else being done. And I, I also think, thank God, Ridley Scott did the right thing, just like George Lucas, to his credit, did the right thing with the Star Wars music of using John Williams and orchestral music. Ridley Scott used this type of electronic music at the height of ele- bad electronic music in the '80s, and it worked very well. And again, it's the music's not dated, like so much. There, this movie is not does not date; it ages gracefully and beautifully. And again, I got to give credit to Scott; he found the right person for the mood for this mu- for this movie, and it it works very well.
2: Excellent, uh, Ken. Thoughts? Again, mirror a little bit what uh, Mark and Jeff has said. Sort of touching on something you had mentioned earlier. Uh, this does, the music in this does do a decent job of reminding you of this movie's roots in the you know 40s and 50s film noir. Uh, there's, an, there's an old sound in a lot of scenes, but it 's not consistent through because again it 's not a soundtrack so much it 's just mood music right. to set the tone for what 's happening well i 'll tell
1: you what i I love the music in this uh, I, I like well, I like Van gellis back when they did uh, Cherish of fired and i've got i 've got that particular uh soundtrack I also have this one, which I do pop into my uh, CD player and iPod on occasion, because I, I do like the music. But then again, I always did kind of like that kind of music. It's, it's a little bit more, it almost sounds sci-fi, uh, in a way, or almost sounds futuristic. It's not, like you said, Mark, this was at the height of, you know, a lot of that electronica music, and this is good electronica type music. It's not the bad shit that, <laughs> that we all heard back in that, in that period of time. But one thing that I really uh, am remiss about uh, talking about, and I should have mentioned it earlier in the show, you know, one thing that this movie had a lot in common with with uh, Firefly nah, that it had a lot in common with Firefly and Serenity is there's a big Asian influence in this movie. Uh, you see a lot major, of, yeah, major. It's big time. I mean, there's you wouldn't know that you were in L.A. if they didn't tell you. You might have thought you were in Hong Kong or Shanghai because there's a, a a very large i think chinese influence in there uh i mean you see it with uh you know the people that are on the streets uh when he went to that bar it was you know it seemed like every other person in there was of of some asian um uh descent and i just think that's kind of neat because it seems like there there is almost kind of a a futuristic thing is that you know somehow us and asia are going to buying together or well, just more co-mingle, kind of like the whole co-dominium, but except not with the Russians type of thing. I don't know. I just think that's neat, and I really like that. And they really you – know, like every time they would show one of those big panoramic views of the city, you always know, saw that big electronic billboard of the geisha girl either taking some kind of a pill or drinking a Coke or doing something, and I just I just thought that was so cool. I just thought that was really neat. Um. I don't know. It was I don't know if there was what the thought process was that was behind that in 1982 I can see more of that now typically with China being on the obviously on the rise but at that
2: time I just saw I well, I can tell I can tell you what it was. Go ahead. It was back in the 80s there was a understanding among a lot of people that essentially Japan was going to take over the world. I mean, it's like America's the time is over. You know, Japan is a strong economy. They're growing. They're expanding. You know, they are going to dominate us cinematically. Uh, this actually had a movie made about it. If you ever saw the movie Rising Sun, uh, the Michael Douglas movie from the, from the late 80s, I believe. Is it right? But the whole idea was, you know, that, that again, Asia is going to become more powerful and America is going to become less and America just got to get on the program of uh, you know, accepting Asian culture and such. But again that's that's a few, you know, at the time everybody said that's the way things were going. You know, by 1990, well, this old hat it was sort of forgotten. But back in the 80s it was definitely a, a, yeah. a thought.
1: Yeah, it
3: well, it wasn't a thought, Ken, as much as it that's what was going on, like you said. The, you know, the Japanese were buying up any piece of real estate they could find here in America, and, yeah. you know, and which it's not really any different than what's going on right now with China and their investment in this country. Um, which I mean, it's I mean, it's it's exactly what it was. You know, now we've got the big you know giant scare. Oh, it's kind of going to you know run our country and rule our debt and yeah. Well, you know what? We've seen this before everything you know kind of comes in cycles and you know it 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 is what it is you know and but if you look at you know firefly for example you know that was god that was what was that, is that almost 10 years ago now
2: yep 10 I years mean back. you know
3: you know it, same theme in there everything is going to be you know run by the chinese that's why mal and them are cussing in chinese all the time because that was those were the two influential powers was china and and america
1: you know, and like I said, that's a good point. I've, I'd forgotten about that, Ken, and that's, um, that was a big thing back then. Uh, well, you know. that,
2: that, that was an interesting thing about this, this creating the world that this movie was, is it's supposed to be L.A. Mm-hmm. And pretty much, going back to, I think, what Jeff was saying about it being a dark movie, it's, it's dark because it's raining in every scene. Every time you turn around, it's pouring down rain well, how often is it raining in L.A.? I mean, something strange is going there. There's gigantic flames bursting in the atmosphere. I mean, I don't know what that's all about. But it's obviously, okay, this is L.A., but things have changed a lot. And going back to what I said at the beginning, I mean, okay, it's, it's, this, this is supposed to be a few years from our future. You know, I just want my flying car, damn it. That's all I can say on that.
1: <laughs> we all want our flying cars. God, you imagine what a disaster that will be when they ever get around to doing those. Where's our jetpacks? Are we supposed to have a jetpack
3: by now too? I don't have Man. my jetpack. You got a jetpack? You didn't tell me.
2: They only work for thirty seconds. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, they just go straight up. Steve <laughs> has a, <laughs> a
3: jetpack and didn't tell me. I'm coming over there.
2: Yeah. Waiting for the car keys uh, to
0: come
1: out. All right. That's how
0: he escapes the spiders.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on to a little bit of trivia. I want to, there, there, there's a bunch of trivia on this one, so I'm just kind of picking a, a few of the a few of the one, uh, top ones here. But uh, Dustin Hoffman was the original choice to play Deckard, although he wondered why he was asked to play a macho character. According to Ridley Scott, Hoffman was interested but wanted to make it a whole different kind of character, and I am so glad that they didn't pick him because, God, this movie would have just sucked with Dustin Hoffman. I just—I'm not a Dustin Hoffman fan. I'll just say that right now. I just, I'm not a fan of his. I just—I don't know. I, I, in this, in the, he would have just been horrible in this role.
0: He would have been fine in the role of Sebastian.
1: Yes, <laughs> there you go. But, <laughs> but otherwise, that's how I see—that's how I see Dustin Hoffman. He's just kind of this.
0: Yeah. Otherwise, no. Well, on the list of God, how long is the list of people that were considered?
1: Yeah, it's, it's huge. I mean, there's. Uh, just to give you a few names, Robert Duvall, uh, Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman. Paul Newman? Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> uh, uh, Scott Glenn. Scott Glenn could have probably pulled this off pretty well. What I, You know there? what? I would almost like to have
3: seen a, a parallel movie um, with Scott Glenn in it yeah. as this role. That would, have
1: been, that would have been fun. Yeah, That guy, Yeah, I don't know. He must have got a – I don't know what happened to his career. But, I mean, he, he did a few good movies and then it just seemed like he was doing schlock. Or, or, or nothing at all um, it's yeah. hollywood
2: i mean he just didn't quite get the breaks
1: yeah and he's a damn good actor too i really he's a hope.
2: good actor and did again lots of good work
1: all Right. uh let's see towards the end of principal photography an incident occurred which has become known as the t-shirt war the majority of the crew didn't enjoy working on the film and didn't like working for ridley scott who they considered to be cold and distant in an article in the British press, Scott commented that he would he preferred working with English crews because when he asked for something, they would say, Yes, Governor, and go get it. But things weren't that simple with American crews. Makeup supervisor, uh so and so said the article saw the article and was disgusted. In retaliation, he had T shirts printed with, Yes, Governor, my ass on the front. And uh Will Rogers never met Ridley Scott. <laughs> so <laughs> that's great, I love it.
3: Uh <laughs> that is outstanding. That's
1: great stuff. That is great stuff.
0: Yeah, I watched the. Um, I've got the. Uh, what do they call it? The final cut, and there's a CD with all the, the backstory stuff, and they show a lot of the. They show the images of the crew wearing those two different t shirts. And even Ridley Scott admits this was a horrific shoot. Yeah. From start to finish. Yeah.
1: Let's see. Uh, Roy Batty's Odd Meld of Father and. After he says it to Tyrell, I want more life, is deliberate. Howard was instructed to pronounce it in such a way that it could be used for both in the theatrical cut and father in all versions of the film for TV. And you know what? I always thought that's what he said. I never thought he said father. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah, a lot of bleeping to do on that one. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Uh, when, when Deckard stops Rachel from leaving his apartment, he pushes her away from him. The expression of pain and shock in her face was real. She said Ford pushed her too hard, and she was angry with him. Uh, Ridley Scott cast Rutger Hauer in The Roy of Roy Batty without actually meeting him. Joanna Cassidy, who played Zora, was at ease with the snake around her neck because it was her pet, Burmese python named Darling. What? <laughs> Darling. That was the name of her pet snake. Wow. She was very comfortable with the snake. She? she was. Ridley Scott told NPR's All Things Considered that he actually wanted Decker to wear a 1940s style hat throughout the film, but Scott decided against that once he saw Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones costume. <laughs> good call. Yeah, good, good move there.
0: Yeah, but Gaff wears a great kind of straw 50s yep. kind of hat. A good post nineteen forties look going.
1: Yeah.
2: he
0: has got that uh, Godfather Part Two look.
2: Yeah, Gaff is an intimidating. To me, he's an intimidating character. Yeah. You yeah. know, if you, when you go into this and you meet him, and then you see, okay, this guy's like lurking around. You don't know what this guy's going to do, and you know, you know, it's going to be if he did something, he's going to be bad. So, I thought it was an effective character. Not, you know, not a major character, but he was effective.
1: Uh, really, Scott had decided to cast Frank McRae as Leon until he saw Brian James audition. After the audition, Scott's secretary told him that James really frightened her, and upon hearing that, Scott gave him the role.
2: <laughs> there he goes. Here. James is sort of a creepy-looking guy.
1: Yeah, he does. He's got a he's got a little bit of a look about him. Let's see. After Pris first meets Sebastian, she runs away from him, skidding into his car and smashing the window with her elbow. This was a genuine mistake caused by Hannah slipping on the wet ground. The glass was not breakaway glass, and it was real glass, and she chipped her elbow in eight places. (laughs) Wow. The snake scale seen under the electron microscope was actually a marijuana bud. Wow. There you go. I like that part. Let's see. uh, Rutger Hauer was chosen for the royal of Roy Batty because his Teutonic non-identifiable American looks. I don't know what the hell non-identifiable American look is supposed to mean. I didn't know we had a look.
2: If Rutger Hauer has an American look, then that means we Americans all look like Dutchmen. <laughs> wow.
3: Yeah, I was going to say. I, I, I was just going to say. I, I don't know about you guys, but I have always found that uh, yeah. Rutger Hauer is all. To me, he just is. Uh, he, he just has a creepy vibe. To him, there's just some thing about his persona that says this guy could be naturally evil, and I, you know, I maybe it's some of the roles I've seen him in, yeah. but it's just he there's a level of creep factor that 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 he embodies in this movie, and you know, and hell, I mean, it, it may just be him.
1: Yeah, he kind of has that look. I'll tell you, the creepiest movie I ever saw him in was The Hitcher. The who? Oh yeah, The Hitcher. Oh, yeah. It's been so long since I've seen that. Yeah, now, if you want to see a creepy movie with him in it, that's it. (laughs) That's the one. Uh, All right, anyway, moving on. Uh, Here we go. Harrison Ford cites Blade Runner as one of the most frustrating films he's ever made, partly because the shoot was so grueling and the changes in post-production that were meant to help the film's chances at the box office but didn't. And last but not least, and this goes back to the uh, little uh, Asian influence discussion we were having, Ken. Harrison Ford became a spokesman for Japanese electronics throughout the 1980s following his role in the film. (laughs) And probably
2: built him a mansion.
1: (laughs) That's great. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wait, I, I do like this part here. A female gymnast was hired as a stunt double for Daryl Hannah in the scene where Pris attacks Deckard. But director Redley Scott rehearsed the scene so many times that when they were ready to shoot the scene, the stunt double was too exhausted to do anything. The scene was filmed with a male gymnast they had to track down during a lunch break.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I saw the video of this in the making, and they've got him in a Chris wig and the whole nine yards. And they made him do it and do it and do it. And you've got to look really close. They made him up to look like her, but... She even, um, who was it, Daryl Hannah even said, this guy comes walking on in leotards dressed like me, and it's like, I don't have shoulders that big. There's no way anybody will believe that's me. (laughs) She also said that, you know, the scene where she sticks her fingers in Harrison Ford's nose when she's twisted his head around? Yeah. She said she was being gentle and Harrison Ford told her, "Nope, we got to sell it. You got to do it. You have got to really stick your fingers in my nose and yank." And she goes, "I felt so bad. He had a bloody nose. I beat him up in that scene." She yeah. said it was uncomfortable, so, but he made her do it. So that he's she's really digging into his nose. I, I I'd need wipes I, after I got. I'm not to digging
1: into
2: people's nose. That that's just that's not in my contract. Uh, so I, you can pick your friends. And you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. <laughs> no, you
0: can't.
3: <laughs> I disagree with that, or, by the way.
2: But can you
0: pick a replicant's nose?
2: Ooh. With a really good friend, maybe you could pick your nose. I
1: don't know. Don't worry, I'm not picking any of your noses. You keep your fingers right. out of mine. I right. make no <laughs> promises about that. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, it is time for brother. what you drinking, Jeff? We're gonna kick this. We're gonna have you kick this one off. What do you got there?
3: I I have the uh, bourbon barrel stout that oh. Mark bought me. I'm now through uh, half of my four pack, so, you know, so the, as a kind of a coffee kick to it, but um, not it, not bad. I'm not a coffee fan. You know, hot chocolate is more my style, but uh, not, it's it's very nice. Thank you, Mark. I do appreciate it.
0: My pleasure.
1: Glad you're liking it. That bourbon barrel was was really good, Mark. Unlike uh, hot chocolate boy over there, I do like coffee, and I like. My coffee, you know, strong, stout. strong and stout. Yes. All right, uh, Mark, what do you uh, what do you got going there?
0: Um, you know, it's a uh, kind of that film noir movie, so I figured I'd go with a little bourbon. Oh, nice. Just, uh, did some uh, Woodford Reserve double barreled um, or oak oak barrelled aged uh, bourbon to keep in the theme of uh Blade Runner because I think he was he was slamming back a lot of booze in this movie. There was a lot of drinking in this movie. <laughs> and a lot of cigarette smoking in this movie. Yeah.
2: A I lot. meant to point that out.
0: Yeah.
1: This was one a of the lot. smokier movies. And even even in a room where there wasn't any smoking going on, it still looked like there was a haze of smoke. Yep. There was something about this again, it
3: the it it was smoky. There was always some sort of, you know, behind the uh the target light that was shining through doors, through windows—you know, for a very dark world, it was very well
1: lit. <laughs> uh, Ken, what do you got over there, sir?
2: Nothing at the present, because I just polished it all off. But I was drinking the traditional homemade vanilla vodka and Diet Coke. Very good. Nothing exciting. Good man. Well,
1: gentlemen, I am on the uh, the final week of my uh, my diet, and um, after which I'll. Be imbibing again, but uh, I've just been having some uh, Cascade Ice Organic Mixed Berry Sparkling Water. How's your diet coming? It's man, I cannot wait till this thing is over. I, I really, I, like I said, it's not one of those things where I, I'm starving all the time. I'm actually feeling well fed and full and stuff like that. It's just man, I want a cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really want a cheeseburger and wash it down with like a hell. I even I would even I would even consider a Miller Lite to be a fine uh, fine beer at this point. Uh, well, they're Schlitz. They're... No, I, I'm not that bad yet. I mean, give me a couple of months, and then maybe I'd probably have to go for Schlitz. But um, no, even even a Miller Lite at this point would be fine. They're
0: going to wonder what happened to you at your favorite
1: watering hole. I know. You know what? I... I was driving by I was driving by there the other day when I went over to Kroger and I saw they had a have you seen this person uh sign right outside the, the door and it was my picture. That's a bad thing.
2: So. You can go in there and just have a diet coke or something. Come
1: on. No, I can't go in there and just can't go in there and just have a diet coke. No. Two hours later and blow your image. <laughs> that's not even that. It's like that's like taking a ten year old in a candy store and saying you, you can't have any.
2: No. You can look. You
1: can <laughs> well, anyway, that that's what I'm drinking, and like I said, uh by the time we get our next show I'll be I'll I'll be off of the, the sparkling water and I'll be imbibing in something uh, delicious at that point. So we're done with that. Let us move on to uh clips. Favorite part of the show. Here is uh clip number one. Give
0: it to hold. He's good.
1: I did. You can breathe, okay? Nobody
0: unplugs him not good enough not good at you
1: that's when uh deckard was getting recruited into becoming a blade runner again because evidently i think he retired or something from
2: uh again that cop was a kind of creepy but happy guy i mean he's like he, he's the kind of guy that like, like y'all you know, smile at you and stick a knife in at the same time right
1: that was m Emmett walsh and he's been in a bunch of stuff he usually kind of plays that basically that role. I think that's what they always get them for. So here's number two.
0: I was quit when I come in here, Brian. I'm twice as now. Stop right where you are. You know the score, pal. You're not
1: cop, you're little people. So I guess that meant he got drafted. Okay, this is number three. This is when Deckert is... Um, giving the Voigt comp that's the uh, test to find out if you're a replicant. He's giving the Voigt comp test to uh, Rachel.
0: You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
3: I, like the, I liked her maker's response to that. He just yeah. kind of got a big shit-eating grin on his face.
2: Yeah. Sean Young did a great job at this movie. I have to say, I, mean, I I really, I enjoyed her role. I mean, she, I think she evolved as a character. I, was,
1: yeah. I, I agree, Ken. I thought Sean Young did a, did a fine job in this movie. I mean, like I said, I haven't seen her in that much because I think after, at some point, she kind of went off the rails a little bit on, um, you know, in trying to get roles in that. But um, wow. I, I thought, I thought this was, you know, a great performance by her in this movie. So.
3: You know, I was going to say, when I read some of the information about Ridley Scott's interaction with Harrison Ford, and he said he was so difficult to work with, and I thought, man, and he even worked with Sean Young. (laughs) And I thought, okay, same thing you did. I thought, okay, either Harrison Ford was a really big asshole, or Sean Young hadn't come into her own bitchiness yet. So... I'm going to go with, you know, she wasn't quite as much of a bitch yet than, um, you know, being uh, Harrison Ford being so um, an over, I guess, such an asshole.
1: I kind of wondered. I I never really even heard that about Harrison Ford. I I didn't know if that was a a rep that he had or anything, or or was there just maybe some kind of a personality conflict between?
2: I I think it was, you know, Ridley Scott just rubbed Harrison Ford the wrong way because I've never heard that Harrison Ford – was anything more than a you know straight up decent actor who was you know again like all actors he has his issues but yeah. I've always heard like. I mean the guy you know he shows up on time he does his roles tries to do the right thing professional
1: yeah so that's kind of an interesting uh, interesting take obviously there was some kind of a personality conflict there but anyway all right uh, number four morphology longevity
0: insect dates don't
1: know I, I don't know such stuff i just do eyes just, just,
3: just eyes james Holland. poor james hall you know by the way there just weren't enough blimps in this movie okay a matter of fact where are my blimps now i want to see more blimps downtown indianapolis advertising things i mean like in downtown indianapolis not above it. i mean like going between skyscrapers
1: that's awesome stuff. All right, number five. We have
2: blips. Yeah. Oh. There's, I've, I've had times where I've seen three blimps hovering
1: above this city. Again, kid,
3: not hovering above the city. I want them going through the city. I want them going down Meridian Street. I <laughs> want them hovering above, like, I want them at, like, the 23rd floor. Okay, just like in this movie, where just blimps were floating around doing their advertising. That's what I want. I want to be a parade every day. <laughs>
2: Well, when the day comes, trying to you know convince me to go have a wonderful world on the Alpharoid colonies, I mean, yeah, they'll bring the blimps down low for that. But until then, they're just selling like Met Life or something. You know, <laughs> that doesn't deserve a, a low-level pass. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow! Number five. Uh,
3: for holes. Holes? Well, you you'd be surprised when a guy go through to get a glimpse of a beautiful body. Well, did you notice
2: know <laughs> that? How he kept dropping in and out of his you know nerdy bureaucrat mode. He yeah. he's all nerdy bureaucrat, and he sort of slip into hard boiled detective. Then he'd slip back into nerdy. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah, she knew what was going on the whole time. She knew he was you know up to no good.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I loved it when she threw the towel at him and said, dry me.
1: Yeah. All right, number six. <laughs> right, there, you
0: look almost as bad as skin job you left on the sidewalk. I'm going home. Good luck with this guy again. He's a goddamn one-man slaughterhouse. That's what he is.
1: That was, after, that was right after he just got done shooting Zora. He dried her off, all right. <laughs> dried, <Yeah>. her <laughs> dried her
0: out. That gun wow. made some big freaking holes in people.
1: Yeah, it did. Oh, God, when, uh, when yeah, Leon's head really? into a canoe, literally. I mean, when, <laughs> when, when he was about to kill Deckard, Rachel picked it up and blew him in the back of the head. It was like, good Lord, you could have shoved your leg through his head. <laughs>
2: well, to take it back to another uh, period piece, it kind of reminded me of the uh, of Snake Plissken's submachine gun with high explosive from Escape to New York. Same thing yeah you know it's not just bang you know it's an impact of some lead it's like bang and a massive explosion on the other end
1: right uh, all right number seven nothing is worse than having an itch.
0: you can never scratch
1: oh, I agree <clears throat> that was just getting the shit beat out of him by the.
0: <laughs> he got the crap kicked out of him in this movie
2: <laughs> so
1: often. <laughs> Yeah.
2: Joanna Cassidy beat him up pretty
1: bad. Well, the only replicant that didn't kick his ass was Rachel. <laughs>
2: You're right. I mean, yeah. Chris for, did. Yeah. You're right. All right. Well, maybe they do need to shoot these replicants then. They're dangerous. They are. <laughs> Wake up. Time to die. <laughs> and he's just
0: slapping him.
1: Yeah. And then he was going to just shove his fingers into his eyes. That that, that You know what? Just shoot me. Don't, don't do that. That's going to hurt.
0: Speaking of which, that scene where, and I don't know if you've got it as a sound clip, where Howard says sayonara to Tyrell.
1: Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's not the way I want to go.
2: Goes back well, to the creepy factor Jeff was talking about.
3: Yeah. Well, it, it did. I mean, anytime you, um you know, gouge a man's eyes out and skull <laughs> him, it, it, It is, it's a bad day, okay, and, oh, man, Mm, give me, give me freezing to death while I'm telling you all the secrets you want to know, okay?
2: Yeah, we we could pretty much make a separate show on just the racing to creepiness factor of various deaths in Blade Runner. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, Tyrell's room was creepy as hell, too. I mean, you got those big, giant candles, like, from fam of the opera all over the place i mean yeah you're right his room was a little on the weird side but then tyrell was a creepy looking dude too oh yeah, the glasses about it the glasses made him creepy oh i know those big ass coke bottle glasses he was wearing yeah. i mean now those could i mean how is he not just like walking in shit wearing those
2: things <laughs> <laughs> i mean <laughs> you would have had well, those- like so many movies you're in these scenes and i'm thinking like don't you have a switch where you can like Turn on a light; it brightens the room up. it's like no, we must not waste electricity. in our, you know, I'm a, I may be a multi-billionaire industrialist, but I got to watch that electrical bill.
1: Yeah, and man, that, that'd be a long time to blow all those candles out, too. Yeah. Good Lord. Well, He got
0: fed up with the CFL <laughs> light bulbs, so he said, <laughs> "The hell with it! I'm just gonna light candles. They, they're
2: faster. They, they were scented candles, and they were giving him a calm. Yeah. Yeah. Chamomile candles. There you go. All right, last clip.
0: What seems to be the problem? Death. Death. Well, I'm
1: afraid that's a little out of my jurisdiction. You I want more life. Father. Yeah, see now there I heard the I heard the father part. Mm-hmm. But I remember I yes. I, I, could, I could have swore in those other versions that I've seen this movie it was you know I mean, he dropped the big old F bomb. But I could have heard it wrong, So i can't
0: I can't remember either way you know, and I don't know if you've got the clip or not steve but the the best one of the best scenes I would say in cinema is uh Rutgerhauer's soliloquy when he's dying
1: oh absolutely, yeah,
0: that whole scene and that whole speech which he he was given some stuff and he didn't like it, and he edited it and he created that soliloquy that is one of the best pieces of cinema and arguably one of the best death scenes in movies in a movie ever
1: and i don't don't remember ken i don't know it was you that brought it up or who brought it up but you know i made the comment before about you know he was you know roy Batty pretty much killed anybody he came in contact with i mean he he killed tyrell he killed sebastian you need to kill him but he did anyway but he saved deckard at the very end and you almost wonder why, and again, one of you guys said it, and it was maybe that was his way of showing that he was trying to be human or showing his humanity, if you will, and you know, I want to bring this up real quick, and i I thought about this when I was watching the movie, and it finally hit me. You could actually do a little bit of a tie in in a way to Prometheus with this movie, and what i 'm getting at is is that in Prometheus. You know, we talked about they were going to uh, they were going to that one planet to find the engineers, and uh, particularly for Peter Whalen, it was to not just find the engineers but give him more life because he said if they created us, they could probably save us or me. And Roy Batty is coming back here to meet his maker to get more life. And I I don't know I just I thought that was kind of neat because you know they're both they're both Ridley Scott movies. And I almost kind of wonder a little bit if that was something that he maybe have throw, he had thrown in there. I don't know. Am I completely off base, or what do you think? I, I see what you mean.
0: I see what you're saying. I, I saw, especially with that scene where the two of them meet Terrell and Batty as um, Frankenstein and his monster.
1: Okay. Yeah. I,
0: I really drew the parallels of he's met his creation, and his creation has surpassed him. But it is also uncontrollable, right? But I can see what you're saying about Prometheus
2: as well. I was going to say I see that too. But uh, something that that scene you just we were just talking about reminded me of because you're saying like you know this reminds you of Prometheus, and I mentioned that like the atmosphere of this movie reminds me of Alien and Aliens, you know that future path. But there actually is a movie that explicitly is set in the same universe as blade runner which is the movie soldier uh it's a kurt russell movie came out about 98 or so and they make references in that movie to things that roy batty is saying so it's it's sort of happening at the same time but with different characters and advertised at that it wasn't pitched as that it just The people that wrote it said, well, that's what we intended, is this is, you know, Soldier is you know, going on at the same time as Blade Runner. Okay, I've I've heard of that movie. I'm going to have to check that out. It's okay.
0: It's a solid movie, but it's not, it's nothing great. But if you haven't seen it, it's worth a rental.
1: Yeah, I've never seen it, so, yeah.
0: Essentially, he's a super soldier before the Nexus models like Roy Batty come online. He is as far as they will. Kurt Russell's character is what I got as far as they can take human genetic manipulation to create uh, combat super soldiers.
2: Yeah, basic humans trained to the maximum, but then when it's like, okay, now we're putting you up against replicants, well, you're obsolete, so we're putting you on the pasture. Okay. Uh, Let's
1: see. Uh, That's it with uh, clips and the, um, the sidebar discussion.
0: I think we should touch on the cinematography and the visual effects. Okay. Um, and, Jeff, I wanted to pitch that one to you because I know that's something you you enjoy, and you're grimacing at me, but you like to discuss cinematography. And I, I I thought what was interesting about the thing that struck me, and I wanted to get your opinion was, thank you, I'm not going to stick my fingers up your nose, Jeff, um, is special effects shots, which were all done with practical and matte work, make it look huge and panoramic. But most of this movie is very tight and dark and up close and wet. This movie is very wet, yeah. but it feels very claustrophobic. There are some scenes that are very panoramic and visually stunning, but most of this is is tight.
3: It, it's a dark movie, if I haven't mentioned that yet, and it, it really sets the tone for the movie. Again, the future is very bleak, apparently, and I'm going to attribute that to a government intervention um, because apparently in about six years we should be in that type of a world and I'm going to assume through government regulation of um, our corporate uh, our corporations um, it has really slowed the advancement of our society down um, but that said the, um, the cinematography it's kind of has a, it could be in the alien type of world. Um, you know, it, you know, Ridley Scott shot it in the same way that he shot Aliens with, you know, these, these lights. You know, you know the door opens and you've got this light shining through. You know, you can always question where the light is coming from. But I think it just adds an air to the movie that is unmistakably Ridley Scott. And, you know, even though it's a dark movie, there is so much detail, like you said earlier, Mark, in the setting of the movie. Um, I mean, you, you know, you walk into a, a cluttered apartment. It looks like a futuristic cluttered apartment. It is also, you know, whether you've got lights shining in from outside, well, I, you, know, you know, you saw all those, all the buildings with uh, Japanese-style uh, moving billboards on the side of buildings. Um, you know, lights were everywhere, even though it was very dark. But as far as, you know, the shots themselves, I mean, the scenes were developed very well, and he intentionally shot these um, with great care. And I absolutely loved it, um, coupled with all the extra lighting.
0: And I was trying to find. I was looking to see who won Best Visual Effects in 1982, because this movie didn't. It was nominated, and boy, did it deserve it!
2: It created a whole. I mean, in its day, what you saw here was so far beyond what else you would see. Again, you, you're comparing this to Star Wars, Star Trek. You know, Superman. You truly believe you're? I, I'm in. I'm in a whole different world. Yeah, at one level, like okay, it's Star Wars. Okay, I. I See, we're filming this in Tunisia or Death Valley or something. It's it's no place different. Here's like this is you know this this is not the here and now. This is a new place, a new culture. It's it's and, you know, again it's supposed to be modern, you know, far future, you know, near future America, but it's a whole different look. And he did such a good job of setting it up. And you know, like we've touched on, it felt right. It was cluttered, dirty, lived in. You had people just running around doing their own. What was that whole scene with the, the people on bicycles with umbrellas just sort of riding around? Like, you want to ride around with umbrellas? Knock yourself out. They don't explain it. They don't say, well, you know, it's a, a religious cult or something. No, it's just, it's raining. I go, okay, I'm, I'm going to ride my bike. I'll have an umbrella. I mean, lots of stuff like that in this movie. They just throw it out there, and it sets an atmosphere. It's a different world.
0: Yeah, did you like the Hare Krishnas?
1: Mark, you just you, you stole that <laughs> right from me, because I was about to say, you know, they must have really thought that the Hare Krishnas were going to still be around in 2017. They missed that one. Yeah, missed out on that one. Yeah, exactly.
0: Oh, oh E.T. wins Best Visual Effects in 1982. Mm-hmm. Beats out Blade Runner.
2: Are you kidding me? No. Yeah, made more it's... money, that's why.
0: Yep, yep, yep. That's That's crazy. Yep, a little puppet.
3: It'd be easy on puppets, because I love The Muppets.
0: Oh, you love like The Muppets, but not that little raisin with...
3: There are millions of kids out there that have a soft spot for that movie.
1: All right, uh, let's see. Let's move on to the uh, Man Cave movie review checklist. Number one, did anyone jump out of a window?
3: L- let me tell you,
1: I lost count
3: of how many windows What's Her Guts went through. And by the time she went through them, she was just a pile of guts.
2: Uh, Zora,
1: Zora, mm-hmm. I lost six six windows. She went through. Yeah, I would. Uh, she didn't jump out of a window, but she went through a lot of them. So,
2: so we're going to give that one uh, a big yes. Right. Hey, Steve, I think All this was So a- Deckard and uh, Fatty both jumped through windows trying to either escape or catch each other. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. You got that.
0: Mark. Hey, I, I think this is the first movie where we've ever seen a character ram his head through a
1: wall. <laughs> yeah. And I like the part where he's trying to pull his head out and he's stuck. <laughs> and then that's when Deckard gets the idea. I, I got this big pipe over here. <laughs> oh, so God.
0: while it's not a window, I got to give him credit. I've never seen that in a movie before. Oh,
1: no, that's. that's he's covered. With well, he, made a, made a with, he made a window. He made a window. All right, number two. Was there an irrelevant female role in the movie?
3: No, 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 like, no. Really, there, there was not. No, everything was
1: needed. I think. Mark, you were. Oh. You look like you had the. pause. The only,
0: my only problem, and I, it, there was not an irrelevant role. It's just I had a problem with Daryl Hannah, but that's, that's with Daryl Hannah, not with the character.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was Roy's love interest. There. Yeah.
0: Oh, and I get that. It's just her as an actress. Yeah.
1: All right, uh, let's see. Number three uh, wasn't irrelevant, but could the female role—actually, there were several female roles—but could the female role be better played by Tawny Kitaen? She could have played Sean Young's character. I don't. I would
3: rather see uh, Sean Young than Tawny Kitaen.
0: Oh, I agree. I I think she was perfect for it, but I could. She has that look. She could have pulled the look off. She
1: could play. Pris. I was going
2: to say she could have played Zora.
1: Nice. No, was, was Zora. I mean, that, that was one of those perfect ones for her. But I think Tawny Katane could have been Pris.
0: But Sean Young was perfect, Jeff, like you say. Sean Young was. She could not have taken the role and done it as well as Sean Young did it. I think, yeah, I don't perfect. think so. perfect.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Did this movie know what it wanted to do? Yeah. I think it definitely did. Yeah. It's a big yes for me. Yep. Yep. All right. Number six. Did George Lucas steal any part of this movie for Star Wars? Yeah. <laughs> did,
2: <laughs>
3: Steve, did you yeah. see the Did you see the umbrella lightsabers?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, Coruscants, the sequels had a lot of the feel of Blade Runner.
3: It sure did. testify. Testify can go with it.
2: I'm with you. I mean, from the the flying cars to just the dark scenes, yeah.
1: It's like the man just can't help himself. All right. Well,
0: the the Jedi Academy, sorry, it looks like he stole it from the Terrell Company. Looks like he stole one of their their monolithic buildings.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, we have to say, we have to be grateful that George Lucas didn't make Blade Runner, because then he would have come out with a Ah. version where he filled the skies with thousands of flying cars. and. All right, last but not least, was there a
1: Babylon 5 reference?
3: As a matter of fact, Steve, there is, and his name is William Sanderson. Come on down. And he had one episode that he was in yep. way, way back.
2: Season one. Way,
3: way back in season one. Um, and did you know that uh, he also reprised his role um, in the video game Blade Runner. But, um, yeah, he was in season one. He had, he didn't, did he, uh, did he meet an untimely death?
1: Yes, he did. That was the movie called Grail, and
2: he played Deuce. Yeah. That's right. He played Deuce. He was running a scam with some sort of parasite trying yeah. to make him out to be a Borlon. The nakaline feeder.
1: Peter. He was also in
2: one of the Babylon 5 movies.
1: Third Space. Third Space. Yeah, he played the same yeah. character, I think. Yeah.
3: As as Deuce, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah um, but yeah, he also uh, was in Third Space. So was that like a prequel or something? I don't even know if I've seen Third Space. Was,
0: third Space, those movies all took place during the five-year arc. They were kind of slotted into the five-year arc. Uh, okay. So they were mega episodes, you could say.
1: Yeah. Okay, that is it with the, uh, the Man Cave movie review checklist. Now it's time for the movie review of this great and fantastic film. Let's uh, kick it over to our good and dear friend, Mark, and what do you have to say, sir? I
0: I think it's just kind of recapping where I began with this movie um, at the beginning of our podcast. This is uh, one of my top ten movies. It is something I'll throw in the DVD player every year or so, and I always catch something new because Ridley Scott truly created a world. Um, every aspect of this movie is so detailed, so well thought out, so visually stunning. The characters are compelling. Their motivations, their actions, their thought, you can relate to them to some degree. You can feel sorry for them, or you can feel very angry at them, or very scared of them, in the case of Roy Batty. It creates a mood, it creates a sense of place, and it makes you believe it, and you want to believe in it, um although I don't want to live in that dystopian world um, because you only get two instead of four of whatever you order. Uh, it also ushered in a whole new genre of science fiction the, that it, it broke ground for the cyberpunk, sci-fi, noir uh, style of science fiction. And um, I, anytime you find where you have a movie or a book or something of that nature that cre- completely remakes or creates something new, uh, I always have to give it even more credit beyond enjoying it as a piece of visual art. It becomes a part of our culture. And I think you could say what Ridley Scott brilliantly created and uh, his technology, his tech team, and his actors um, took from his direction and created uh, is a brilliant, transcendent piece of film work that I give a 10. And I would say it is probably. My favorite science fiction movie, and also it's a great philosophical movie because, as we've touched on, it raises the question throughout, what does it mean to be human? And I think it does that on a philosophical level very well without being trite. So this is uh, this is one of my favorites, folks, and if you have not seen this movie, you really you should own it. Brilliant movie. I'm glad we did it, Steve. Cool. Bravo for 50.
1: Absolutely. Jeff? <laughs> Uh, thanks, Steve.
3: Um, sticking with my my new structure, I, this is one of those movies. I don't I don't put in too much. I Own it; it's in the collection. Um, I like it, um, but it's um, it's not one of my. I don't think it's one of my top ten. Uh, definitely, probably in my top twenty twenty five somewhere. It's such an enjoyable movie um, to to watch. Um, and again, when I alluded to that creep factor, or maybe it wasn't so much of an illusion. Um, this movie just it does something for me that I, I, I enjoy when I do watch it, but it's because of that I think it kind of pushes me away at times. I like the way that this movie is shot. Um, for a cinematography, I give it like a, a full two points. Um, the sound of the movie, as far as the sound quality, um, I do like how it is mirrored to the movie Uh, i think it is very well done i don't need a soundtrack uh, or a score for this movie Um, i need a mood music and i thought it does a great job i give it a 1.75 the story is where we kind of get a little bit uh, it just at times i there's too much uh, formula that goes on here. or There's too many coincidences that happen at the right time to make things happen. And for me, that just kind of grates on me a little bit. I give that one and a half. Um, the acting, I give 1.75 to. And when I add them all up, I give this an 8.75 man cave drawings. Very good. Ken?
2: Again, uh, towards the end here, I'm going to mirror what Jen uh, Mark have said. I'm going to give this a nine. It's way up on my list. I really, really like it. I like the fact that, you know, in its day, when this came out, it was above and beyond any other similar attempt to create a vision of a future that was a little different. Uh, most of the other attempts up to that point had made it a, you know, sterile, antiseptic, clean, again, 2001-ish sort of future. This, This was a... Dirty, gritty, wet, morally compromised feature. Bradley Scott did a really good job putting it together. The cast was, you know, very competent, did a very good job from top to bottom. So, again, I give it a solid nine, pretty high.
1: Okay, very good. My review on this one, like I said, this is my, probably one of my favorite movies. If I had to pick a top ten, this is definitely in there, and it's probably in the, Probably in the top five. I, I have always liked this movie. Like everything about it. Lo- like the actors. Um, you know, especially I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Harrison Ford. Love Rodger Hauer. He was just absolutely fantastic in this movie. Uh, you know, supporting cast. Everybody else is really good. Uh, like I said, love Sean Young in, in the role. She looked like she stepped out of a 1940s, uh, you know, uh, pinup poster. Uh, from World War II, I mean she just was uh, stunning looking in this movie. And like I said, I liked everything about it. I liked the, the the setting that it was in, the cinematography, just everything about it. it just that noir look, that 40s uh, throwback that they had, the wardrobe, everything about it. I just kind of like the you know the juxtaposition of it 's a futuristic movie yet everything kind of looks and feels like the 40s. And I just thought that was so cool. And I just this is this is one of my top favorites and I, I have to give it a ten. It's I can't I can't I, I would feel remiss to give it anything less than a ten. It's just one of my favorites and just nothing nothing bad to say about it. So that is my review.
0: The only thing I would say is if you go see it, there are a ton of different versions. If you want to see the theatrical version as Ken mentioned with voiceover, then get the one that's 1982 Blade Runner. If you want to see what Ridley Scott wanted done, then it's called Blade Runner: The Final Cut, and that came out in 2007. Right. Um, and there's all sorts of box sets with all sorts of and stuff. This is one of those movies. I think we could all agree that's got more versions than 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 Steve has uh, flavors of bourbon locked up <laughs> under lock and key while he's on a diet right now in his liquor cabinet.
1: You got it. And and Mark, that's a good point. Let me back up real quick and say that my my review and my score is based off the the final cut or the director's cut. I probably would not have given it a 10 with the theatrical version. I mean, I did like the and, and don't get me wrong, I I still love the movie. I do think the voiceover narration did take something away from it. I don't know what and I don't know why. I just I I'm not a big fan of narrated movies. I I just never really have been. But that being said, my my score still stands. And if it was uh the theatrical version, I'd still give the theatrical a 9 easily uh, without a doubt cuz like I said this is probably one of my all-time favorite movies. I had I have it on DVD somewhere around this house, but I've got the Blu-ray picture too, so Okay, that is it for Man Cave Movie Review episode 50. Stay tuned for us next week when we're going to be talking about Star Trek, the motion picture. So until then, check us out at our website at mancavemoviereview.com. And we're also on uh, iTunes at Man Cave Movie Review. And check us out and give us a like on Facebook at Man Cave Movie Review. So until then, I'm your host, Steve Michaels, signing off with my good and dear friend, Mark Nexus 6 Slover. I was quit
0: when we got to this part of the podcast, Steve. I'm twice quit now.
1: (laughs) Kind of felt that way, didn't it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, real quick, though. Thank you for getting us to episode 50. We could not have done this without you. Big kudos to you, Steve.
1: Well, no, I can't do without you guys either. So kudos all around and mucho gracias to everyone. And last and certainly not least is our good and dear friend, Ken. If you're not a cop, you're little people Ronnie.
2: I've been working on my origami lately, but I'm up to quite a gaff skill, so I'm going to leave that off. I won't be giving any origami for Christmas. Okay. Can you do Again, like a little, little pig? little pig, origami pigs, you know, things like <laughs> that. But, no, this was, a, this was a treat. This is a great movie, and you know, I've had a great time. I'll, I am the shirt alternate on the podcast. I've been about half of them. I've really enjoyed it, so keep up the good work. And thanks for all the fans out there that uh, listen in. We hope we're giving you some good ideas for movies. Excellent. See you in the next 50.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, our good and dear friend, Jeff, I just make eyes. Muncie had to run off because he had a um, small child that needed a detention. So uh, he uh, sends his regards, and we'll uh, be talking to you soon. So
0: that's it, folks. Hope You, you know, know, Jeff makes toys, yeah. <laughs> and one of the toys bumped into a wall. Yeah,
1: exactly. All right, so, folks, that's it. Until our next show, I'm your host, Steve Michael, signing off. Ciao. that's it for Man Cave Movie Review episode 50. Uh, stay tuned for us next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, so until then. That's him. <laughs> Somebody wants his daddy.
0: Somebody <laughs> wants daddy. Yeah.